All right, to your seats. Thank you so much. If you are in the hallway, to your seats. I keep getting reports about a bunch of people in the hallway doing the sermon. What fruit of the spirit is that? As a matter of fact, Chris, you are now ordained to be the hall monitor. Ain't nobody going to be out there for long. That's it. Chris is our Thanos. That's it, man. You know, but they, they should have a get in there infinity stone. It'd be like get in that room. Change your reality real quick. Excuse that to me. It's too, well, y'all haven't, hold up. Are there people? Oh, okay. You haven't? Hey, listen, man, I had to open an illustration from the movie, man. Let's, hey, if you haven't seen the movie, go in the hallway just for a second. If you, it's ridiculous. Y'all said, no, Joyce, you stay. Joyce is a recipe. Y'all send it against the Lord. Y'all haven't seen that movie yet. It's ridiculous. I'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. No Thanos, no, no Infinity War illustration. However, I'm looking forward to If I see people walking, Chris, I'm going to just look at you like this. Handle that. So if in the sermon I just look to say, handle that. I'm not, you don't have to write that down. That's just, that's me telling Chris I see people too much movement out there. And that's a serious thing. You know, you, we don't, you know, we gather together to do a number of things on a Sunday morning. One of them is to hopefully hear a word that's both biblical and both applicable to our lives. And you can't do that if you're in the hallway discussing how your week was. There's plenty of time for that after church and, and before church. So uh, this is a true statement to anybody that, that does it. I can understand if you're struggling with something and you run into someone in the hallway that's fine, but I would just say, just for because it's Sunday, this is the only time we gather together like this for the week, like make the most of this particular moment by being a part of the community and the life of the church when you hear that, if, if you're here. So if you have issues and you're struggling with stuff, just talk to somebody afterwards. Talk to someone afterwards. Don't, don't, don't clog up the hallway. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. Are we getting into chapter two? We're still in chapter two. We are going to uh, look at four verses today, verses 12 through 16, and these verses represent sort of a shift in an introduction of something that hasn't been said previously in this letter. This is a shift towards what Paul introduces this concept of the law. He introduces this concept of the law. Now, many of us who are Christians, we know on some level what the law is, but we're going to talk about what what is the law. But this is the beginning of, it's the first time in the book of Romans where Paul is bringing up this word law. And he's bringing it up understanding that the people who are listening to him, the people who are the original recipients of the letter that he was writing, they understand what he means by the law. But this is sort of a shift. Up to this point, Paul hasn't mentioned anything about the law, but this would become a major theme in the rest of this book, a major theme in the life of Paul's ministry. In fact, I would say, apart from the devil, the law may be Paul's greatest opponent. It may be his greatest opponent. And by opponent, I mean it may be the, the one aspect of life that is keeping people from following Jesus Christ, particularly the Jews. The law has its own theology and and Paul now, as he has kind of gone through this introduction and explained 
what's happening in the world. And, and now he's really going to get into sort of this dynamic of the law and what it represents and what it does not represent. But this is just sort of the beginning of this. The next two sections of this, this particular letter, this chapter, he will unfold that. And then chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 will really sort of explain in fuller detail his concern for those, particularly Jews, Jewish people were the ones that were given the law, his concern for them and how they think about the law in relation to their relationship with God. And so in many ways in the New Testament, particularly in this letter and books like Galatians and other letters, the law is sort of on one corner and the gospel is in the other corner. And these two are competing with one another. And a lot of what Paul is trying to do is help you understand what is the law and what is the gospel and why those two in and of themselves cannot coexist. They can't coexist. And so he says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, reading from the CSB translation. Here's what he says. First time he mentions this concept, at least in the book of Romans. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. It's a lot of language that can seem confusing. So we're going to zoom in and hopefully make this not confusing. Let's pray first to do that. Father, every aspect of the Bible, we truly believe, those of us who do believe in you, we believe is your word. We believe it's the word of God. And there are just aspects at times, and this may not be the case for some or many in this room for this particular text, but there are times when we just don't understand what you're saying or mean because we don't live in the time when this was written. Many of, almost probably everyone in this room falls on the side, if not every, almost everyone falls on the side of being a Gentile, people who didn't have to keep the law. So a lot of this we know sort of by reading, by understanding, by hearing, but it wasn't, this isn't our particular thing. So it can be easy for us to feel disconnected from this, but I pray that this morning you would connect us to this very specifically. I know you would help us to see if at all where we are in this particular text and how this applies to us that we may grow. And if there's someone here who is yet to believe in you, I pray that you would allow this text, if 
appropriate by your spirit to challenge them to consider, consider their lives and consider the grace that comes from believing in you. This room is filled with men and women who have professed to believe in you, though not easy, with particular challenges, with crosses to carry all of us. Some of our, some of our weaknesses are obvious, some of them are not. But we all have something, some things that we battle with in order to glorify you. So this morning is no different. I pray that the words that I speak today would be helpful and would be accurate from you. And if they're not, Lord, I pray that you would strike them from the memory of those listening. But that what is true, that which is true, I pray that you would press it upon the hearts. May people here come to either to be encouraged or to be convinced. But I pray that you would not allow us to come here and be complacent. It's far easier to be that way than we give it credit for. So, Spirit, do your work this morning. Do the work I can't do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to answer three questions today. Three questions. This is all we're doing today. Three questions. The first is, what is the law? What is the law that Paul's talking about? The second question is, why is he bringing the law up? Why is he bringing this up right now? What's he doing? And the third question is, why should we care? Why should we care? So what is the law? Why is he bringing the law up? And why should we care? In other words, what does this have to do with us? Many, if not almost all of us, are not Jewish. So what does it have to do with us? So let's start with what is the law? There's a few different ways you can answer this question, and depending on who you ask, some people will have different explanations for what is the law. It's not as easy to answer as people think. Even among those who are Jewish, you can find a couple of different answers. But there's usually four things that typically people might say if you say, what is the law? And so the, one of the first and probably one of the most popular, well, at least second most popular is the law is the law of Moses. So by meaning, by meaning that, that means the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, is from Genesis to Deuteronomy. We believe that Moses wrote those books, and in those first five books contain the story of humanity and specifically how Israel became the nation that God chose. So this particular understanding deals with these first five books, and they're sort of different kinds of laws within those first five books. So there's what's the moral law, which is sort of the law of which you obey, the obedience aspect, the do's and don'ts of the law, in a sense. There's the civil law, which kind of deals with justice and, and righteousness within the community. And then there's the ceremonial law, which deals with, like, the, the sacrifices and the feasts and, and some of the different things that the Israelites specifically were called to do. So sometimes when they're thinking of the law, they're talking about this component, the first five books of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy is what many people think of when they think of the law. Another answer you might get, which is one that's probably the most popular 
and it's the most succinct is, what is the law? The Ten Commandments. Most people think the Ten Commandments is sort of the law. So one to ten. Let's name them. Here we go. I'm kidding. Look, people were like, I'm... <laughs> There's some faces like, no, no, don't call me, please. <laughs> I haven't had my coffee yet. So the Ten Commandments is succinctly how people, and even I've used that sometimes. When, I, when I'm teaching sometimes and don't feel like getting into all the particulars of the law, I just say, when you think of the law, think of the Ten Commandments. Think of them. And that's sort of a succinct way to say, this is what the law is. The Ten Commandments and some of the other things that go with that, the laws that extend to that. The Ten Commandments is what many people would say what the law is. Another answer might be the moral commands in the whole Old Testament, or a word like the Tanakh. That's it. For those you Star Trek, Star Trek fans, that sounds like a, 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 a Klingon word, Tanakh. Those of you who don't watch Star Trek, never mind, don't worry about it. But It is Romulan? Thank you. Thank you. Romulan. Wait a minute, aren't the Romulans the uh, people that have like the little C the Caesars and, okay, so now it's, it's the Klingons that be like, Tanakh. That's, never mind, that's probably not helpful, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> but that would be the moral commands in the Old Testament, including Proverbs and stuff. So even though, they actually, and this is, I, well, I don't, because the law is separated, so you'll hear Jesus say the law and the prophets. But some people will think everything the Old Testament teaches from a moral perspective represents the law. And then lastly, uh, some people would say, particularly the Jews, would, would, they would sum up the law as sort of as saying circumcision. Circumcision is, is uh, males who are born eight days get a piece of their anatomies cut off, and that represents this circumcision that communicates this relationship with God that makes them God's people that he, that he began with a man named Abraham. So, so these are sort of ways that people think about the law. So let me just give you a definition that is simple, that I think will kind of sum everything up. When you think of the law, this is basically what the law is. Direct instructions from God on how to behave. That's what the law is in, in essence. They're, very, they're direct, not sort of this trying to figure it out guessing, not, not, not you know, New Year's resolutions, but very direct commands from God on how to behave or how to live. Just direct commands from God. So that's the Ten Commandments, but it's definitely more than that. The Ten Commandments are sort of a summation from God on the moral aspects of it. But there's, I mean, you get the whole book of Leviticus. That's a fun book to read. When you read Leviticus, you'll get a sense of like, wow, this is pretty serious. Exodus 20 on talks about sort of the law and the requirements of the temple and those things. And then you get the Leviticus is sort of the, 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 the moral, civil, ceremonial, all of that. Then, then Deuteronomy, some of these things are repeated. And so you get this idea that God has a specific way that he wants people to, who believe in him to behave. And that's essentially what the law is. That's essentially what it is. So out of all the people that ever existed, God chose a particular people, the Jewish people, to say, these are the initial people of God, and I'm going to give you the law. You are the people that I'm going to choose, and you're going to be the people that behave differently, that live and act differently than all the other nations in the world. And you're going to be somewhat of an example. This, this began with a contractual agreement 
between God and a man named Abraham. It was, in the Bible, it's called a covenant, and it just means it's basically a contract between God and Abraham. God will bless Abraham. Abraham believed God, and that will come up more in chapter 4. But Abraham believed God, and so that was credited to him as righteousness. And because of that, God's going to bless Abraham and and Abraham, and that's Acts of Genesis chapter 15, God establishes sort of you're going to be a blessing to many nations, and he promises that he's going to have a son. And in Acts 17, I mean, uh, Genesis 17, God brings up the one thing you need to do, though, is circumcision. That's going to sort of represent between me and you that we have this contractual agreement. So I'm going to bless you like crazy, and you have to have your, your males circumcised. And that began sort of this contractual agreement between God and Abraham. And he promised Abraham, even though Abraham's old, like 90s, he promises him you're going to have a son from your wife who's maybe in the 80s. And you're going to name him, and from him I'm going to bless you. So this idea comes from that. So he does have a son named Isaac, and Isaac later has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and these 12 sons have a ton of families, ton of children, and these children eventually grow up to be these 12 separate tribes. And that's how Israel as a nation is formed. It comes from Abraham. And this is sort of a contractual agreement that God made with Abraham for no reason at all except he wanted to bless Abraham. And by default, he wanted to bless humanity. There was nothing necessarily that we could say, oh, Abraham was such a good dude, and this is why God chose him. It's like, no, God picked Abraham and said, from you, the nations will be blessed, and a particular nation is going to come out of you. And he tells them in in Genesis 17 that they're going to, for 400 years, suffer, and then I'm going to come and free them from that suffering. And that's what happened. So these, these Jews all go to Egypt, and then after a while... They just grow and grow and grow, and the Egyptians enslave them. And then eventually, after some 400 years, God sends a man named Moses to free them from slavery. And he does, with God's help ultimately, and he leads them to this land, and then God gives them the law. Exodus 20. So, look, I've saved you. As a result of that, here's how you are to behave. Here's how you ought to live. This is standard. This is standard operating procedure for God. There's no such thing as live a certain way first and then you'll be saved. It's I've saved you. Now live this way. That's standard operating procedure. It hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New. God saved Israel, brought them through the Red Sea, saved them. And now, beginning in Exodus 20, he says, here's how you live. And it starts off with the Ten Commandments, and it extends, and it extends, and it extends, and it extends. And that's the law. Now, Israel did not keep that law. They disobeyed God continually, continually broke those laws until Jesus comes. So when Jesus comes, he's the only one that can do what the law requires. See, the standard of the law is perfection. That's the standard. The law is about being perfect. And that's what the Jews didn't really get. 
You see, they thought God chose us. He told us how we're to behave. We're God's people, and that's it, and the rest of you are not. They didn't realize that the law that God gave you was supposed to be fulfilled perfectly. And the only way you can get credit for believing the law is if you never disobey it one time. That's it. So Jesus shows up. He obeys God perfectly. He goes to the cross and gets punished as if he disobeyed the law, rises from the dead, then sends his spirit to people who believe in him and says, okay, I've fulfilled the law perfectly, so you don't have to. So you're not going to get punished for not fulfilling the law perfectly. So now that you're saved from the wrath of God, here's how you ought to live. And that's essentially what it is. After Jesus died, the law was still heavily debated. How necessary is it? If you are not Jewish, do you still have to keep the law? Do you still have to get circumcised? Do you still have to do all these feasts and festivals? Do you have to remember the Passover? Do you have to do all these other particular ceremonial laws? Do you have to sacrifice animals anymore? One of the things that God said in the Old Testament is if you sin, there are particular animal sacrifices that must take place for your sin to be forgiven. Do you still have to keep those things if you weren't Jewish once you become aware of the gospel? And so this idea, this tension becomes a major big deal in the early church, especially people who were Jewish that were like, hey, listen, I don't care if the Gentiles who are non-Jewish people, I'm fine if they want to become the people of God, but they have to obey the law just like we had to. So the tension is, but that's not what Jesus said, though. The gospel is different. The gospel says you can obey the law, but I, Jesus, can. I did, and now you're forgiven for not doing it. You see, here's what the Jews didn't understand. God's standard is sinless, not sinless. There's a difference. God's standard is sinless perfection, not sinless than the people around you. It's sinless. Now, after we become Christians, because God accepts Jesus as being sinless on our behalf, then we do live lives that we strive to sin less. But we only sin less because Jesus was sinless. That's the standard. If you don't believe in sinless God, then you have to be sinless in obeying God for God to see you as being worthy of forgiveness. And it's impossible. It's impossible. So the standard was sinless, not sinless. Once you place faith in Jesus, God sees you as being sinless like Jesus, and then your life proves that by being sinless. 
And that's sort of how we, we go. God declares us not guilty. It's called justification. That will come up in a chapter, a couple chapters in a major way. The Jews did not understand this. They thought we are the chosen people of God and we know the law. So we are judging and condemning all the people who don't have it. And that was a major problem. And it was a major problem in this particular chapter. The standard is sinless, not sinless. They missed it. They missed the purpose of the law. The law was to show you like, wow, who can do all of this? Now, there was grace in the law because God provided forgiveness within because he knew no one's going to keep the law perfectly. But no one was supposed to think, hey, keeping the law in and of itself is like that's what we do. It's like actually, no, you can't keep the law perfectly. So we need to figure that out. Who, who, who can do that? Because, I'm, I, mean, if I, I mean, I can't even imagine if Jesus hadn't come. I mean, just for myself, I would have a couple of farms. And the reason being because when you sin, you have to sacrifice animals. So, so being a farmer would be, like, can you imagine, like, we part of our sin would be going to steal cows and goats from other people's farms, doves and all of that. Because, like, you broke the law and you don't have any birds to kill. But he has 20 of them. So now at night, instead of a wolf killing the sheep, it would be us at night using your iPhone like as a flashlight. <laughs> trying to get you a goat. <laughs> Knowing that God will forgive you because you can raise sacrifice the goat. Part of your stealing the goat would be the sin that you sacrifice him for. That's how you get around it. That's sort of what will happen. There would be no, Alfred Hitchcock would have never made a movie called The Birds because they would have been all dead because people... People would have to kill birds to have their sin forgiven. That was part of the Old Testament. So Jesus' coming was huge for us as well. The standard is sinless, not sinless. So this is a dilemma in Romans. So now, why is he bringing up the law right now? Second question, why is he bringing the law up? Well, let's start from verse 1 and read through verse 16 just to get the full context and then I think it'll make more sense of why he's bringing the law up right now. Chapter 1 had no mention of this at all. Chapter 2, now the law shows up and will sort of dominate the next few chapters. But here's what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says this. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed, this is verse 6, he will repay each one according to his works, 
eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when, the, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So why is he bringing the law up? Why is he introducing that here? Let's look at this. In verses 1 through 5, he is talking to people who are judging other people who do not keep the law, which means the, to behave the way God instructs. So these people, and, and it appears to be Jews in view here, the Jewish people, his point is, you're judging people who, don't, who break the law, but you break the law too. You break the law too. Do you realize that? Like, you break the law too. You break it. Because the standard isn't, did you sacrifice when you sin? The standard is, you're not supposed to sin. That's the standard from God's perspective. It's not, did you go to the priest and handle that? It's... It's did you, did you sin in the first place? So he's talking to people who are condemning other people, condemning them, treating them as their sins deserve, judging them because they break the law. And he's saying, but you, you do the same thing. Do you not realize that God's grace and not punishing you for breaking the law is supposed to lead you to Repentance to living, fighting even harder to not break the law. They forgot that the law and the standard is sinless, not sinless. So they're judging people for not being sinless, but they're satisfied with the fact that they may sin less. But the standard is sinless. And so what he's saying is, your sinning less is just as bad as them not being sinless. You've broken the law. Do you see that? They're comparing themselves to others and thinking they're more righteous than those they judge as unrighteous. So Paul is reminding them that, hey, you failed too. In verses 6 through 11, Paul separates these two kinds of people in the world, and he talks about those who will receive eternal life, those who receive eternal life and those who will not receive eternal death, in a sense. And the emphasis on the Jew first and the Greek is building up to this reality. See, I told you last week that that was about, that wasn't about uh, a favoritism, because he said it in verse 11. It wasn't about 
preference, it was precedence. You see, the Jew first, then the Greek, then the Gentile, it means the Jews, you know better than the Gentiles. You know the law. They don't know that I said don't do this. But you do. So you're going to get punished first because I gave you the law. You know better. They don't. So I'm coming for you first, then I'll deal with them. First Peter 4, judgment begins in the household of God. I'm coming for you first, then them, because they don't know that. So what Paul is doing here, he's bringing this up to show the Jews in particular that the confidence they place in the law is actually worthless unless they obey the law perfectly. And he understands that that's what they're doing. So first in verses 1 through 5, he calls out their behavior. In verses 6 through 10, he highlights the rewards that will go to those who actually obey God. And then he gets very specific in 12 through 16 and says, let's talk about the law. Because that's what you're judging people by. This becomes a major theme in the rest of the chapters. Well, in our text today, this particular use of the law is different. Because Paul is going to talk about the Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, that had not received his specific commands on how to behave and how to live. He's saying, I'm going to judge them, and he explains how he's going to do that. And so he starts off in verse 12 saying this. This is the underlying truth for humanity. He says, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So 12a, the first half of 12a, he's talking about people who have never heard the law. Then he says they will be destroyed without the law. That's what perish means, destroyed. So this begs the question, why should these people perish if they never heard the law? Like, on what, what are you going to measure them by? You can't measure them by the law you gave the Jewish people because they never heard it. That's unfair. So he answers that in verses 14 through 16. He answers, well, what's the criteria that he will judge them by? In verses 12b, the second half of b, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Verse, that 12b and 13, he speaks briefly to those Jews who keep the law. But he makes a distinction between those who keep it and those who hear it. But the reality is there's really no distinction. Because no one can keep the law fully. But he's sort of using this argument like those who keep it and those who hear it. So those who keep it, they're going to be blessed by God. And the Jews are supposed to look around and be like, well, who's actually kept it perfectly that we know of? Nah, he, nah, he sinned yesterday. <laughs> nah, he, you're supposed to think of it like, well, who actually keeps the law? That humility is supposed to set in, but it didn't. So when Jesus shows up, you have men like the Pharisees with their nice robes, rocking around with their chests out, like the champ is here. You know, they come in the room. The Pharisees are here. Let me see that the great seats, you know, we're the law keepers. We're the godly ones around here. Step back, peasant. That's what he did. That's what they did. That's what they do. That's why Jesus was offended. That's what he did. That's why the Pharisee and the tax collector story, the tax collector is sitting way back like, man, Lord, Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. And the Pharisee walks in and wrote, you ever see? I don't know if you, you ever see the guy, who, Michael Bay, right? He makes Transformers, right? He's the best at slow motion. 
He's the best. You watch any Transformer movie, slow motion is the best. In Luke 18, that Pharisee and the tax collector, this is what's going on. This is the movie. It cuts scene to the tax collector. Father, I'm praying. Cut scene. He's regular speed. Cut scene. Slow motion. Door kicks open. All you see is a rogue from the thing down. So much. Man walks in slow motion. Gets up to his face. Bearded man. Big, big rogue. Walks past. Sees the Pharisee. Sees the tax collector. He's walking slow. Then it speeds up. He talks about all he's done. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I keep the law. I tithe. I do this. I do that. And Jesus said, who went home forgiven by God? The one who said, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Not the one who said, look how good I do what you said. Do. See, this is the problem. That's the problem. But in this particular passage... He's going after something that is more significant. He says, all people will be judged, but the standards of judgment are a little bit different. And so here's what he says. Verse 12, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. They're going to be destroyed. They're not going to make it. By what criteria? Verse 14. How will they be judged? Here's what he says. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law or do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So here's what he's saying. When people who never heard of God's specific commands on how to behave and live, they do certain things without that natural sense of knowing that. They do this by instinct. They do it by instinct. When they do that, it says they have a law unto themselves. So I'm going to evaluate them on a different criteria. Well, if they don't have specifics, how do they have a law? How do they get this law if they've never heard of the Ten Commandments? They, they've never heard of this. They didn't go through, through, the, through the Red Sea. They weren't slaves in Egypt. They weren't chosen to be. How do they know this? How do they have a law unto themselves? And so he says this in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either excuse, accuse, or even excuse them. So what does this mean? What does this mean? You don't have to turn there. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes 3.10 and 11. It says this. It says this. It says, I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. Verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning. So here's what this verse is saying. Here's what Romans 2 is saying. At some point during the creation of humanity, God placed this eternity in their hearts, this sense of this moral conscience God gave to every human being no matter what. Okay, the story of creation that we hold to is not a Christian ordinance. It's a creation ordinance. 
So it's not just Christians aren't made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God. And because of that, God has given people a moral sense, an internal sense of right and wrong. It's an internal sense. When did this take place? Scripture doesn't tell us specifically, but we know in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God determined out of all the creatures that he created that human beings would be the most like him because we would have an internal sense of right and wrong, good and evil. This is the way we were created before sin comes into the world. This is before that. When did this happen? It's not very clear in the Bible, but this is what I think. In Genesis 2, 7, this is what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Whatever that breath of life was that God breathed into Adam, I think is exactly what all of this is. Because if you look further down in chapter 2, it says that God created every beast out of the ground. But it never says that God breathed into them a breath of life. Never once. In fact, when he creates Eve in the same chapter, Eve doesn't even get breathed into her a breath of life. He takes Eve out of Adam's rib. It never says that he breathed the breath of life into Eve because once he breathed it into Adam, all of us received it in one instant. All people. So he didn't have to breathe it into Eve and breathe it into every human being. Once he breathed it into Adam, it was in all humanity. And this breath of life is sort of this eternal sense, this, this soul, this, this spirit, this, this sense of morality, this sense of eternity, this sense of there's something greater out there than us. This is, and this is funny to me. Christians get upset at people who believe in evolution, but all evolution proves is that God has placed in people's hearts something that explains that something greater is happening. They just have confidence in something else. Evolution, to me, doesn't disprove God. It just shows how God worked a little bit. They understand something is greater. Science is proving that something great is happening. We just need to find the method and the formula that we can describe how it happened. So we disagree on the method, but not on the greatness, not on the reality that something has been made. And the reason why people... Even non-Christians, people who profess to be atheists. Why do you want to be a good person? For what? What do you want to be a good person for? Where does that come from? You don't believe in anything. Fine. Where does that come from? Why do all religions, every real religion aspires to make you a better person? What religions do you know of that say, until you choke a man out, you can't really believe? Until you commit harm or No, they tell you, do better, do good, meditate, be at peace, all these different things. Pray five times. Go out and knock on the doors and tell everyone. There's a sense of being a better person is what even non-religious people, atheists, they believe that. Where does that come from? Society? No, it comes from an inner sense that God has given all people. Well, Adam and Eve, when they bit the fruit in Genesis 3, 6, they inherited a definition of good and evil that was different from God's, and we did too. 
So now we all have our own definitions of good and evil that are rivaling God's. But God still never took away the inner moral sense of people's consciences. He never took it away. It was damaged badly, but that's a part of what makes us different than animals. We make moral conscience decisions, and there's a sense of justice and right and wrong in all people. That comes from God. So what does that all that mean in light of these verses? So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. Here's what God is saying. Even though people haven't heard the law or even in our day, the gospel, I can still and will still judge people based on how well they kept their own conscience. I can still judge people based on the moral law that's on the hearts of people that I gave them. And if they've broken even their own conscience once, then they weren't perfect. They're not worthy of eternity with me. That's a reality. Whether we like that reality or not is a different subject altogether. But God is saying, I'm going to still, no one's going to be. It's not like, hey, if you don't, if it, holiness, righteousness is, is the standard. Perfect righteousness is the standard for God. It doesn't change. Grace does not lower the standard. It just forgives us for not keeping it, and it reminds us to keep going, to keep pursuing it. It doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, hey, you know, you don't, got, you don't got to go hard anymore. You're good. It just says you're going to fail, and you're forgiven when you fail because I see you as having done it because you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's like an eternal credit card. That's what it is. We got credit. We got a credit card of righteousness because Christ gave it to us, and that's what we use. So when God runs our credit report, it's like, oh, you got an 800. It's like, well, how do I got 800? I struggled with this my whole life. How do I got 800? Well, he gave you some of his score. He gave you some of his scores, so your score is 800. I know that really you were like an 80. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let's keep it 100 in here. You're going to learn today. Your, your credit score is at 80. But Jesus shares his score with you, and so we each have 800. Perfect score. Perfect score. Perfect score. But you only get that if you believe in Jesus or if you keep the law perfectly. And not just the law that was given to people, but the law of your own conscience. Listen to this. We're so sinful that we can't even keep our own standards of right and wrong. We won't even keep that. We'll do stuff that we know is wrong. And just not care. And so God is going to specifically say, okay. There are people, he knows, there are people that did not get the law in the Old Testament. And there may be people, there may be. Um, there are people who have died who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying this applies to babies. That's a different situation to me. If an infant passes away or something like that, that's not what I'm talking about. 
This is talking about people who are able, able-minded, that understand the definition of right and wrong, that have a conscience, that go against that conscience consistently. God's saying, I'm just going to evaluate you based on what you knew was right and wrong. So there's no atheist that can't say, well, I never heard the gospel. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to really hear it and believe it. God will say, okay, cool. Let's go by what you did know was right and wrong. Why did you lie right here? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Your conscience told you you shouldn't do it, and you did it. In fact, you thought about this for days before you did it. Your conscience was trying to hold you back, and you still did this. You see, there's no escape. There's no escape here unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. There are people who will stand before God and there will be no excuse because everyone has disobeyed the law, the law of conscience, the law of God's specific commands for how to behave. Everyone has. And he's saying, because you've done this, you are going to be judged. So the people who so the, verse 12, all who sin without the law will perish under the law. It means you're not going to make it. You're going to be destroyed. All who sin under the law, the Jewish people who were told what God said do, you're going to be judged by that law. You're going to be judged by it. So either you didn't know it and you're going to be destroyed or you did know about the law and you're going to be judged by it, which you're going to be pronounced you're destroyed because you didn't keep the law. Now, this is when Jesus comes up to the point before Jesus comes. God was satisfied with sort of the the grace that he made in forgiving people's sins through animal sacrifices and things like that. But once Jesus comes, all that stuff is like, okay. so if you still think you can be saved by that, then keep the law perfectly. If you break it one time, you're, you're that's it. Eternal judgment for you. So that's really it. Either you can have eternal judgment for trying to keep the law or you can have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come and die, live the law perfectly and then die brutally so you could keep doing the same thing that you couldn't do. He did it for you. So what you going to do? This is sort of what's going on. Once Jesus has come, the law, he fulfills it. So now what? It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in verse 16. Let me read 14 through 16. So when the Gentiles, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. It doesn't mean excuse eternally. There are people who did do what their conscience said do. That's what he means. He doesn't mean you'll be excused from ultimately being judged by God. But there are times where, you know, even there's this thing sometimes Christians can think that non-Christians don't do any good. That's not true. There's a difference between doing good that's good enough to glorify God and, and make it to heaven. And then there's just doing good because God has made place that in our hearts. There are a ton of people that will never believe in Jesus that are nice folks. I got neighbors, man, that are cool people. Nice. 
talk to them. They know your kids. They don't know the Lord. Ah, I'm not really in the religion. All that stuff. Nice people work hard, love their spouses, love their children. Don't cheat on their taxes. Anything you could name, they try their best to do it. Good folk. Good folk. But they don't know Christ. It's not like non-Christians can't do good works. They just can't get anything for those good works. They can't do it, get anything for them. When you believe in Jesus and you do good works, it's like God says, I'm going to reward you for that. There's a difference. So when Paul says, on the day when God judges, verse 16, what people have kept secret according to, to my gospel through Jesus Christ, he doesn't mean he has his own gospel. He just means the gospel that I've been preaching. That's what God's going to judge people through, the gospel that I've been preaching. That's the standard of judgment. And either you kept the law completely that God gave you, you kept the law that he placed in your heart, or you believed in Jesus. These two options, not going to make it. This option, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, but as a gift. In summation, in summation, verses 1 through 16 is basically saying, look, everyone should know better than to sin. But those with more access to the truth will be judged more strictly than those that didn't have that access. The standard is sinless, not sinless. So why should we care? Why should we care? Many of us are professed Christians. Why should we care? We're good. Why should we care? But we must always think of application as somewhat internal and external. It's internal and external. And here's why we should care. Because like the initial people of God in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day, we can be tempted to think that because we made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and we know the truth that we're good. And that grace is amazing and grace is just going to forgive us. And there's truth in that. There's absolute truth in that. But there can be a tendency to think like, I'm not really tripping. I'm not going to really go after this and pursue it. And I'm just going to kind of plod my way through. I'm making excuses. I'm sinning willfully. And I'm just wanting people to just forgive me and God to forgive me. I'm not really praying. I'm not really reading. And there's a sense where it's like, like almost like God's grace owes you forgiveness because you made a profession and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a scary way to act as a believer. That's a scary way to act. God understands that we all have struggles. All of us do. But it's a dangerous way to act if we think because we know the truth, or have been Christians for a while now, that somehow we're excused from persevering and pressing in. And we talked about that last week. There's a tension. There's a tension. You know, one of the most damaging things I heard when I became a believer, I became a believer and we came into sort of Reformed theology, and there was this, there was all this talk of legalism. Everything is about legalism, legalism, and everybody talking about that's legalistic, and this is legalistic, and it's legalism. And you would hear these slogans like, grace is opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. That's legalism, 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 legalism. You know what I saw happen? 
The problem wasn't that people were trying to earn their salvation. They weren't trying to earn their righteousness before God. I remember going to people being like, hey, do you really, do you honestly feel like you're struggling because you want to earn your righteousness before God? Is that your trials? And you're like, no, not really. I couldn't figure out why do we keep talking about this? I get like that's what Martin Luther was talking about because he was going against the Catholic Church. So, of course, justification by faith was a big deal to him and, and all of that stuff and legalism because they were all about traditions and works and all this crazy stuff. I get that. But the majority of people that I was around weren't struggling with earning their salvation. So saying that everything was legalistic gave them reason to not be diligent to pursue God because you don't want to be legalistic. I remember one time a lady, this godly woman, loved this woman. She would ask me a question. Sometimes I make a list of things that I feel like I need to do or pray. Is that legalism? And I said, are you trying to earn? Do you honestly believe that by that list you earn your righteousness before God? He was like, no. I said, that ain't legalism. That's called diligence. I think that's done a considerable damage in the Reformed community. Because many of us don't struggle with trying to earn our salvation. Many of us struggle with trying to prove we have it. Diligence. And this is why this verse, verse 13, verse 13 is sort of a sobering verse for us. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Look, confession and profession of faith is what you got to do. But that's not all we have to do. I'm sorry, grace is not opposed to effort. If it was, then the whole idea of perseverance would be taken out of the Bible. I don't know how you got around that one. Because perseverance is effort. Perseverance is effort. Trusting God when your life is not going how you think it's going to go is effort. Trusting God when he exposes sin in your life and it feels like the end of the world is hard. Asking someone for forgiveness who you've been bitter at for a long time is effort. Fighting temptation takes effort. The people who don't think it does are the ones who don't really do it. It takes effort to say, God, you are still God despite the fact that all this is happening in my life. And like I said to this brother's question last week, if John the Baptist the one person who knew who Jesus was could say, ask that dude, is he still the Messiah or not? Then our circumstances can tempt us. He saw Jesus, he baptized Jesus, and his circumstances were so much that he wondered if Jesus is really who he says he is because I'm in prison and he does not do nothing for me. If he could think that way and seeing Jesus, don't think that we don't. Now, we may not say those words, but here's how we say it. We don't read. We don't pray. We withdraw from some of the spiritual aspects of life. We think that being with our families is our top and sometimes only priority. And it's like, well, Jesus said, who are my mother, sister, and brothers? These who believe in me are. Don't get me wrong. My wife and my kids are important to me, but this church is my family as well. We find any reason to come up with certain things that will excuse us from being a part of what God is building. And I'm sorry, he's not building your life in him apart from everybody else. He's building our life together if you're, as long as you're here. And if the Lord calls you somewhere else, then he wants you to be a part of the life of that place. Those are ways that we just kind of like, oh, okay. 
I think we have to say, what does it look like to persevere? And it may look different for different people. I'm not telling you what it looks like for you because it may be different. But what's the difference for me hearing the messages and reading the Bible and doing them? What does doing look like? What does it look like? That's why we have to be careful. That's why. We can't read this and think, oh, okay, cool. Because we can be just like the Jews in verses 1 through 5 who look at people in the world and be like, these people are wild. We judge what they do or we hear about other Christians. Maybe you're in a small group and you find out that there's a couple that has a, a lot of conflict that you and your wife don't. And you're sitting there thinking like, wow, they crazy. Nah. You know what you say? Is there go I before the grace of God? How can I help? Because you know what God does often? The stuff that you judge people for will be the stuff you struggle with later. That's how I, I seen him work like that a lot. This last thing I'll say, I'll never, this happened to me when I wasn't even living for the Lord. I'll never forget this. When I was in high school, I knew I was getting a D1 scholarship. Like, I knew it. I just knew it. I know it was basketball. Don't, I know this, this is, don't, don't worry about this. It was basketball. But I was getting a D1 scholarship. And I remember then, I was like, man, I'll never, I, I remember there were people who would get drunk. They would use drugs. They would, I had friends that would sell drugs. I was like, man, I'm never doing that stuff. There's no way. I mean, I was, I used to be, I didn't know it was self-righteousness back then because I had those categories, but I was just self-righteous. I mean, I'm never doing drugs. I'm never getting high. I'm never selling no drugs. I'm not doing none of that. A year after I graduated high school, I was getting pounds of weed. A year after that, I was selling crack. A couple of months into that, I was in shootouts with different people. I went from I'll never do none of that to I'm the epitome of it, just like that. And since that happened, I never say never anymore. Because there go I before the grace of God. This is the church. We have to be careful to not just be hearers of these things, but doers of them, even if we don't like all of the doing part of it. That's the church. That's what we do.